Welcome, guys, to Jonah, chapter 2, 8 through 10, part B, part 2 of the longest series of Jonah ever. And um, we are going to open in prayer. Father, just thank you for bringing us here today. We ask that you would just fill us with your spirit, Lord, and help us to be discerners of your truth and what we know not teach us and what we have not give us and what we are not make us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Uh, usually in class, we start out by singing a, a song, but because I'm not in a class and we're not going to all sing, I'm going to read you the words. And there's um, a song, a wonderful old hymn called Be Thou My Vision, and this, um, the lyrics to it are just so uh, perfect for our study for today. So we're going to read those out loud. That Be Thou My Vision. O Lord of my heart, <clears throat> not to be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word, I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, and I thy true Son, thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou <clears throat> ever first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure, thou art. High king of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. We're going to read Jonah 2, 8 through 10. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah 2, 8 through 10. Continuing on in this short uh, passage regarding idolatry, which I might add we all are all pr so prone to, William Euthorne states, Whatever a man seeks, honors, or exalts more than God, this is the God of idolatry. It is so interesting to me in that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not prohibiting our enjoyment of his good gifts, rather our priorities of them. We find in Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek him first. Let him fill your cup. Actually, he overflows it so that it spills to others around us in our spheres, and we are no longer needy, but have something worthwhile to share with others. He alone satisfies the hungry soul. He alone quenches our thirst, our need. He is the way to happiness and holiness, and we don't want to miss his best for our lives, period. Re, um, all men seek happiness. Um, John Bloom writes, But doesn't this make an idol out of happiness? By elevating and encouraging the pursuit of happiness, are we making it a competitor with God? While a particular pursuit of happiness might indeed be idolatrous, to contrast the experience of happiness itself with God is a confusion of categories. John Piper brings helpful clarity to this. When I say I desire happiness, I mean I want to be happy. 
But when I say I desire a biscuit, I do not mean I want to be a biscuit. Happiness is not an object to be desired. It is the experience of the object. So it may not be idolatry to say I want happiness more than I want any other experience. God is not in the category of experience. And so you are not ranking him. You are, know it or not, preparing to find him. Idolatry is not wanting happiness supremely. Idolatry is finding supreme happiness in anything other than God. That is why C.S. Lewis said, It is a Christian duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. He, like all the great saints of Scripture and history, knew the unblushing promises of reward, of the happiness God holds out to us throughout the Bible and that these are not invitations to idolatry, but to true worship. For our greatest pleasure is always the measure of our greatest treasure. Again, I wanted to read um, Blessed Are the Poor in Spirit by Thomas Watson, and he is a Puritan from the past, and he writes from Matthew 5, 3, Many have shot wide of the mark in seeking blessedness. It cannot be found in worldly things. But how ready is man to place happiness in them? The tree of blessedness does not grow in an earthly paradise. God cursed the ground for sin, yet many are digging for happiness there and seeking a blessing out of a curse. You may as well seek fire out of water. Earthly things are transitory and not adapted to the soul. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Riches do not satisfy. They shine in the eye, but death shaves off their glitter. If a man were crowned with all the delights of the world, nay, if God should build him a house among the stars, the eye of his mind would be looking still higher. The thirsty soul is unquenchable until it bathes in the river of life. Amen. That which is unable to quiet the heart in a storm is unable to give happiness. Goods cannot soothe a troubled heart or a wounded spirit. Can a wedge of gold satisfy an angry God? King Belshazzar was carousing, but when the fingers of a man's hand appeared, his countenance changed. His wine grew sour, his feast was spoiled by the dish served up on the wall. The world can no more keep out trouble of spirit than a paper can shield a bullet. Earthly things are like a castle of snow under the heat of the sun. Soul enjoyments of the world become a curse in the end. How many have pulled down their cells to build up an estate? A ship may be so laden with gold that it sinks. Judas sold his salvation for money and the Pharisees bought their damnation with it. To place our happiness in externals is to seek the living among the dead. A treasured estate will not comfort, and it will fall short of our expectations. Outward comforts cannot make you blessed. You might live rich, but die cursed. That is enormously true. Okay, we also find in Ecclesiastes, where Solomon writes, Ecclesiastes 5, 19 through 20, Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart 
What a wonderful statement to be occupied with gladness of heart. Don't we all want that? I also think of young Daniel and the environment he uh, and his friends were carried to in Babylon. Not too dissimilar, really, to our environment today. Greg Laurie tells us, <clears throat> Daniel was a spiritual man in spite of the environment he was in. Carried away captive to Babylon, he could have easily, easily fallen into compromise. There in the palace, he literally lived in the lap of luxury. It was a place of rampant idolatry, of incredible cruelty, and of sexual immorality. <laughs> Yet, in the midst of it all, Daniel and his cohorts remained of righteous men and flourished spiritually. Sometimes when we're in an environment around uh, Christians all, all the time, we can put our lives sort of on spiritual cruise control. On the other hand, when we are carried away in a secular environment, it uh, forces us to do one of two things. Either we will bend the knee into the woodwork, blend into the woodwork, or we'll stand up and be counted. As Greg Laurie says, Jonah had a strong testimony from his harrowing experience. His statement concerning the folly of trusting in idols, worthless idols, in verse 8, provides a dark background against which God's brilliant grace is evident. No lifeless idol could affect so great a deliverance as the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land and everything in it. It is also in blatant contrast with those who trusted in lifeless weak idols for their deliverance and for their strength. The loyal love, God's amazing grace, of God's amazing grace that rushes to the aid of God's own, not only glances back to Jonah's deliverance, but hints at that of the sailors who ended up abandoning their own gods and relying upon Yahweh for help. Remember, we can make idols out of anything. Our work, our families, our friends, our hobbies, our adoring audiences, our wealth, even our perfect children, or our wonderful meals, or our clean and ordered homes. It appears we can make Delilah's out of whatever the mind can conceive. Idols are whatever we tend to hold on to with such a vice grip that we will not let go. Often, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. It is simply the priority we place on them. That's a skew. <clears throat> if they become our gods, it's wrong. And if anything or anybody takes Christ's rightful position on the throne of our lives, it's an idol and must be removed from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Live your life with open hands. Worshiping idols takes away from God the affection and the obedience that rightfully belongs only to Him and demonstrates our lack of faith in Yahweh. For any Israelite <clears throat> to trust in idol worship was a violation of the covenant. Covenant loyalty was a mutual obligation, both of God, the initiator of the covenant, and of the Israelites to whom the covenant was given. 
Accordingly, one who broke the covenant's first commandment by, by having other gods had abandoned his or her loyalty to Yahweh. Jonah expressed the availability of God's abundant grace, his love, his covenant faithfulness to his people, and to warn them of the danger of abandoning their grace, that grace when they abandon God. Jonah's idol of intense patriotism was a stumbling block to him. He was so concerned for the safety and prosperity of his own nation that he refused God's call to be a messenger of the truth to Israel's enemies, the Assyrians. Jonah was also seeking to protect his own dear reputation. These desires caused much havoc in his life, and he rightfully deems them worthless. God also deems any idols worthless, as we discover in Deuteronomy 32, 20-21. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be. <laughs> For they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God, and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. It will devour the earth and its harvest and set afire the foundations of the mountains. Deuteronomy 32, 19 through 22. Indeed, God does not look lightly on idol worship. Guard your hearts against it. Still in the belly of the fish and looking back at his time of desperation in the sea in his rearview mirror, Jonah now looks forward in verse 9 to the coming temple experience with a song of thanksgiving and praise. Indeed, while he's still in the dire circumstances, he chooses to sing a sacrifice of praise. True sacrifices of praise occur when we choose to praise in circumstances that are not of our choosing. Laura Black, a young mom and believer in sweet Jesus who succumbed to breast cancer, once wrote, I cannot understand him, but I can trust him. And so today when everything physical and emotional in me is completely drained and there is not a single note of praise in my heart, I choose to praise him anyway. <laughs> not for what he does, but for who he is. When I cannot praise him out of joy, I will praise him out of obedience. And I'm learning that when I praise him out of obedience from the depths of the pit, it is always more meaningful than when I praise him out of an overflow of my heart from the heights of the mountaintops. And because I know his nature, and I know that even when I don't feel it, he is still a kind, loving, good God, 
then I know that soon he will fill my heart with joy once again, and the praise will flow easily from the depths of my heart. Amen. Like Jonah, Laura, like Jonah, whose circumstances had yet to change, she writes during her belly experience what is truly a sacrifice of praise. And she states God rewarded her for this. Actually, I might add, remembering we are but flesh, he bestows upon us an extra amount of grace that sustains us for us to endure. Praising God lifts us up as well and puts our hearts in agreement with God's will for our lives, be it ever so hard. I believe this blesses his holy heart to embrace with joy what he allows. Yet another example of sacrifice of praise in circumstances not of our choosing is found in Kara Tiplets, who died March the 22nd, following a two-and-a-half-year battle with breast cancer herself. She was 38 years old, the wife of a Colorado pastor, church planner, and mother of four young children, ages 3 through 12. Kara blogged about her journey with cancer on her website, which was appropriately named Mundane Faithfulness. Kara chose that name based on a Martin Luther quote, which says, What will you do in these days of mundane faithfulness? Last fall, Kara stepped into this national spotlight when she herself penned a letter to a 29-year-old, Brittany Maynard the Oregon young woman who herself had cancer and gained notoriety for championing her own assisted suicide. Maynard, in light of her own terminal uh, diagnosis from, brain t- uh, from a brain cancer, chose to end her life on her own terms in an effort to avoid undue suffering for both her loved ones and herself. Tiplett's dying of cancer, too, wrote Maynard an open letter which stated unequivocally, your life matters, your story matters, and your suffering matters. My season of weakness has taught me the joy of receiving, the strength of brokenness, and the importance of looking for God in each moment, she writes. We will each of us endure moments, perhaps years, when we are tempted to doubt whether the promises of God are true. After all, Joseph in prison, David in the cave, Jesus in the grave, such moments form the crucible where faith is forged. He cannot lie. He will do what he said, Ronnie Stevens. Remember, as well, God's no's to us are always for a greater yes. We can trust him. We can trust him with the lives of ourselves and our children. The psalmist writes in Psalms 116, 17 through 19, I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord, Psalms 116, 17 through 19. Our wills and our praises in difficult circumstances, not of our choosing, are a fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 2, Be imitators of God, therefore, 
as dearly loved children and to live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. And the writer of Hebrews also, as in Hebrews 13, 7, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Again, Hebrews 13, 15 through 16, Jonah believes he will once more see the temple and carry out his obligations to God. He will sing a song of thanksgiving at a special thanksgiving ceremony. He will recount all that God has done to deliver him and will testify about God's goodness to him. This is Jonah's promise to God when he sees the temple again. Jonah had experienced God's grace in a way that melted his rebellion, soothed his pain, and sweetened his sadness. Having reviewed all of this, Jonah can only shout from the inside of the great fish's stomach, salvation comes from the Lord. Amen. The prophet was well aware that deliverance always has its ultimate source in God. Always. This is Jonah's personal testimony, personal confession. God had saved him, standing at death's door. He cried for God's help and found God present and approachable. And as he always is when we draw near or even scream out to him, help or Lord, save me. As Peter demonstrated this for us, he found himself rapidly sinking in the waters when he took his eyes off the Lord and placed him on the waves, as we discover in Matthew 14, 25-33. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they, they were terrified. They thought, it's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reaches out his hand and caught him. You, of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat, worshipped him, I guess they did, saying, truly, truly you are the Son of God. Matthew 14, 25-33. This always reminds me of Hebrews 12, 1-3, which tells us to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author 
and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful man, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hebrews 12, 1-3. The Lord is precious and loving to his own. No matter how dark our life may seem, do not give up. Pray to the Lord for help. God is always our greatest source of help at all times, and particularly when despair invades life like an ominous black cloud. On this day in history by Robert Morgan uh, in... um, I believe it's on July. I have to get my glasses because I'm blank. Um, the 16th, uh, he goes on to, to tell us, The London plague of 1665 was terrible. Most shops closed, orphans roamed the streets, parents wailed, and the dead were borne out daily. On July 16, 1665, businessman William Pethrick, a widower of four children, took his family to the parish church. The sun was brilliant, the tame smooth, but his heart, the heart of London was sad, and the somber church was packed. The minister read from a back of three, Fig trees may no longer bloom, or vineyards produce grapes. Olive trees may be fruitless, and harvest time a failure. Sheep pens may be empty, and cattle stalls vacant. But I will still rejoice in the Lord. That evening, a horror fell upon Pethrick. He feared his children would die as well. He called them all together. He read Habakkuk 3. He sent them to bed and knelt and prayed earnestly for the first time in years. He cried out over each child, saying, If my children were snatched from me, my fine boys and my lovely girls, the treasures that she has left me, how could I rejoice in the Lord? He continued praying in in anguish. Spare him, O spare her. O Lord, have pity. As he prayed, he realized he had long neglected prayer in the Lord. He had been concerned for figs and olives and cattle and harvest, more concerned than than anything of the things of Christ. He wept, confessed, prayed on, and found peace. The next year, as a great fire consumed London, it threatened Pethrick's warehouse, containing practically all his earthly substance. This time, however, there was no anguish, just simple trust in God's will. He later wrote, Lord, thou hast been pleased by pestilence and fire to redeem my soul from destruction. Thou didst threaten me with the loss of my choicest gifts, that I might set my heart's affections once more upon the giver. Once more, he got his eyesight back on the Lord, but the fig, but excuse me, but the fig tree did not wither, the vines did not perish, the olive did not fail, the pestilence did not touch my children, the flames did not destroy my goods, except the thanks of thy servant this day, and help him all the days to rejoice in you, Lord. Jonah prayed to God. He prayed, and he was thanking him in advance for what he was going to do. He showed his trust in the Lord when all human objects of trust had failed him. 
God had truly saved the prophet Jonah, and Jonah wanted everyone to know about it. He could not save himself, which nobody on earth can save themselves either. But the Lord can do it, for salvation is of the Lord. Jonah is quoting from Psalm 3, 8 and 37, 39. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. Psalm 3, 8. And the salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Whom do you take refuge in? That salvation is from the Lord is the central declaration of the book of Jonah. It is also the central theme of the Bible. How very wise for Jonah to have memorized the word of God. One never knows when one is going to end up in the proverbial belly of the well. And most often, we are there without the scriptures in hand. That's why it's so important to know God's truth, to have it stored safely in our hearts. Being able to quote the scriptures, especially the book of Psalms, gave our protagonist light in the darkness and hope in this desperate and seemingly hopeless situation. God now speaks to the great fish as clearly as he has spoken to Jonah. The fish served as God's messenger in a way comparable to a prophet serving as God's messenger. The fish did not reply. He simply deposited Jonah to dry land. What a way for a distinguished prophet to arrive on shore amidst the vomit of a great fish. In chapter 1, the sailors treated Jonah like dangerous cargo and uh, to be thrown overboard. And now he's treated like a foreign substance to be disgorged from the fish's body. He must have given that fish some serious indigestion. But when Jonah ceased to be an obedient prophet, he cheapened himself, becoming the only one to blame in this situation. We can be certain that he was duly humbled as he once again stood on dry ground, albeit all covered with the great fish's last night's dinner. I mean, that would have to be a humbling experience, right? People like Jonah who see their prayers answered look back at their experience and testify that God had given them salvation. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 25, 9, in that day, they will say, Surely, this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isaiah 25, 9. They know that God alone can bring deliverance. Only God. Because human help is in vain. Yet how so very often we forget that. God himself states in Hosea 13, 4, But I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the desert, in the land of burning heat, 
when I fed them, they were satisfied. And when they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. Hosea 13, 4 through 6. And again, Hosea tells us in Hosea 14, 3 through 4, Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. Hosea 14, 3 through 4. God expects the person being delivered to trust him and to repent of his sins. Again, the prophet Isaiah writes what God states in Isaiah 30, 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Isaiah 30, 15. Jonah joined a long line of his ancestors in seeking God in his temple and lamenting, asking him for salvation. He also joined a long line of people who had experienced God's deliverance and could rightly proclaim, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation always comes from the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that our salvation comes from you. We pray you would take your word and store it deep in our hearts that we may be a changed people and change our worlds, Lord. We ask this for your glory alone. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Beth from Sharing Bread Ministries. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the written permission from Sharing Bread. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Sharing Bread. For additional information on Sharing Bread, you can look for us online at sharing-bread.com. You can find Bible teachings for adults and kids, links to podcasts and other resources to help you grow in the Lord. Again, that website is sharing-bread.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in touch with Sharing Bread. Sharing Bread, laboring to grow up families in Christ.